Good to see you. Also, I want to do a shout out, West Seattle. We're streaming this over to West Seattle, so everybody say hi, West Seattle. You can't see them, but they can hear you. So, love you guys. It's good to see you all. And I also want to tell everybody that, um, and the reason why I'm including, you know, got to give a shout out to West Seattle is because I got over here this morning using the West Seattle Bridge. Yes, it was awesome. Took a selfie illegally, just real quick. Just over, just had to take it to make sure that it was proof that it happened. It was pretty good. It was, it was pretty good. It was felt awesome. I'm very excited to, to be here this morning, to be with you guys, uh, to have everything. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Luke chapter 9? We're going to be putting our attention in verses 12 through 17 this morning. Luke as we begin, we've, we've kick-started our sermon series off again, and this is the, the series that we've titled The Story for Sinners and Sufferers. Luke is just a fantastic gospel that gives us beautiful perspective and um, understanding and teaching of Jesus, kind of lifting sinners and sufferers up towards heaven in a way that's just miraculous and beautiful. And this morning, as we're starting kind of chapter 9, I just wanted to say, Luke chapter 9, it's a pretty big chapter. It has a lot in it. It's probably the biggest of Luke's gospel, and it has a lot going on um, inside of it. And so we're going to be spending several weeks kind of diving into each portion. And this story this morning is the story of Jesus feeding 5,000. Now, the cool thing that I want you to think about and, and know is in each gospel, this story is... is uh, given in each one. And that's interesting because each time it's shared, it has a little bit different of a perspective on it. Like if you look at John, John's focus is on this faith of this, right, this child bringing these fishes and loaves, right? And the disciples experiencing what this faith looks like. But in Luke's gospel, it's actually very different. In Luke's gospel, it's addressing how a moment of excitement that the disciples had just experienced. They just received moments, you know, before they had experienced their first mission trip, being given Jesus's power and authority to go out and heal people from sickness and disease, right? Heal people, do all this miraculous things. Luke's intention here is to highlight those moments in our lives when our confidence in Jesus gets shaken. And what Jesus' response is, is to us. This moment is not necessarily highlighting the disciples in this exuberant faith that they've had, this power that they've, they've come out to. It's quite the opposite. This is a story of sinners having a moment of excitement just beforehand only to be met with a, a sense of inadequacy and a difficulty believing that Jesus can do what he's saying that he might do. I think it's a story for us. It's a story for us that is both totally miraculous and totally realistic at the exact same time because like us, Jesus' disciples felt confronted in their faith 
by a large, hungry crowd. And we, though we don't face large, hungry crowds all the time, we do meet moments in our lives where pessimism over the future seems to overshadow our faith. We're hit with a thousand different challenges throughout our lives, and as believers, it's easy to become unsettled when momentary excitement turns to shaken confidence. Try as we might, sometimes it's hard to get over this sense of inadequacy. But if you are in a place where you feel that, if you're in a place where you feel totally wiped out, fatigued with your circumstances, uncertain of the future, this story is for you. But in the same sense, if you feel encouraged, if you're in a season of encouragement where your faith feels like it's being uh, renewed in new ways each and every day, this story is also for you. Because every story about Jesus is a story of hope. Amen? And this is what Jesus wants to do as a response to his disciples when they have moments of looking out at a crowd and saying, it can't be done. There are four things I want to highlight with Jesus in who he is and what he teaches about himself. First, that he is faithful. Second, that he is sufficient. He is Lord. And fourth, that he is our provider. So let's pray before we begin. Father, I pray that you would be with us, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to discover the difference that Jesus makes in all of life. God, would you be with us? Would you prod these moments and these areas in our lives that we are holding back? That we're living and we believe that you have given us faith. But God, we recognize it as a gift and we need more of it. God, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's officially fall. I know you're all excited. Um, I hope you're all excited, even though our summer was like super short this year, Um, almost unfairly short. But every year, every fall, I try to kind of do the same, I kind of have the same habits and the same rhythms where I try to go back into rereading the Narnia series. I don't know about you guys, I love Narnia. I just got to get it in, you know, I got to get it in every year. As the seasons change, I always feel like it's a good time. But one of my favorite books in the Narnia series is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the best, and it has so many moments in it that adults, when you're reading, you're like, this is totally me, you know, or, oh man, you know, I I can recognize and identify with this moment, but one of my favorites is the part when the Dawn Treader and all the Narnians that are on it, they're going into the, uh, they're going into the Dark Island. The Dark Island, this part wasn't displayed in the movies, and it should have been, Um, the Dark Island was just this black void that was in the middle of the sea. And as they go into it, the Narnians discover, as soon as they're inside, that this is the island where your nightmares and your dreams become reality. And so everyone is kind of just losing their minds, and they're really scared in this pitch black darkness. All they can hear is each other. When Lucy then very powerfully calls out to Aslan and she says to help 
and suddenly an albatross starts, uh, an albatross shines on the front of the Don Treader. And you see this total gospel comparison of this albatross is shining in and illuminates all of the darkness in their, in their ship so that they can kind of steer out. And this albatross is like whispering to them, have courage, dear heart. It's this awesome moment, and they finally get out of it. And this is my favorite part. This is why I love it, and I can identify with it so much, is that as soon as they get out of the, the, uh, the dark island, everybody rejoices. But then this is what happens. Drinian, one of the characters, he says, after we've gotten out, can everybody set up their hammock and, and go to sleep? And it says, so all afternoon, with great joy, they sailed southeast with a fair wind. But nobody noticed when the albatross had disappeared. And that's how the chapter ends. And I love it because I love how realistic that is. In a moment of the most heightened joy that they could experience, they've just been saved from their own darkest terror. They can't even remember when the thing that took them away left. They literally forgot. How fitting is that to reflect the shortcomings that we often have in the Christian life? We experience God's power in amazing ways, working in us, working through us, only to be exhausted shortly after, hope for a nap, and then forget what happened. That's, it's not just exhaustion, too, but it's also those moments when you experience all of that, all of the goodness of God to be looking out to a future and say, yeah, it can't happen. Even in subtle ways, that moment happens to us. Instead of leaning into our confidence that God can do it, our faith seems to slip. And I want to address Jesus's response to us through our passage this morning. In looking at how Jesus responds when my confidence is shaken. The disciples, they're in this very situation. The 12 just arrived back from their first short-term mission trip. Right? They debriefed with Jesus. They said everything that happened to them. They, they're like, they can't believe it. This is amazing. They shared all the amazing things and the, the power that he had given them with the authority he brings them into a remote place to pray, to rest. All of a sudden, they turn around and they're hit with this giant crowd. This giant crowd. It says 5,000 people. It was way more than that because I was only counting men. Thousands and thousands of people. And their response is verse 12. Let's read that together. Late in the day, the 12 approached and said to him, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. So what's happening? What's, what's going on? They just had this spiritual high, this moment of, of experiencing power and Jesus' power and authority in a brand new way, all of a sudden to be saying it can't happen? Like they got to go away from Jesus? Why is that? A friend of mine, years ago, and then it was actually brought up again, just this past week, I was talking to Ernan, shout out, 
um, I was talking to Ernan about this, these Elijah moments. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but when I first began vocational ministry, a friend of mine warned me about these Elijah moments that might happen. As you might be familiar, the prophet Elijah, he goes in and he has this moment of the spiritual high of the, you know, God is making this sacrifice burst in flames after he just dumped it with water in front of all of these people to show how real God is. All of a sudden then, when he's up in that big moment to crash down as soon as he hears the slightest threat from the king that he still wants him dead. Enough so, it's such a spiritual low that Elijah finds a cave that he goes into and he says, God, just kill me now. And we kind of deem that an Elijah moment where you have this spiritual high followed by a crashing spiritual low. But I want to make another suggestion that I feel like hits everybody more often, which is like the disciple moment, trying to keep it fresh, you know, and coin new terms. This disciple moment is when you have a big step of faith at the same time followed by a very pessimistic future. God can do it. I believe that's messed up. That's not going nothing's going to change there. This is the disciple moment, a disciple moment. And how quickly does that happen to us? And better yet, in that moment how does Jesus respond? Does he respond with, oh, you of little faith? In this moment, I think we can be hopeful because when the disciples' confidence is shaken, Jesus is faithful. In our moments, in our disciple moments, Jesus is faithful to us. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, that faith really is a gift. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It is God in his grace that he gives us faith to combat our unbelief, however momentary they are. Sometimes, faith is not necessarily the problem, but our self-dependence getting in the way. It's not that we don't have faith. It's just that our faith is becoming muddied in the pressure of our efforts. God can do it as long as I try hard enough. That's where faith and self-dependence start to get muddied by pressure. It starts to become a different thing. And this was the challenge that Jesus wanted to address to his disciples in verse 13 through 14. Right here, Jesus addresses the challenge of faith when their effort seems inadequate. And how do we think about that when my effort is inadequate? Jesus told his disciples, you give them something to eat. He told them, we have no more, and then they told him, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people. So still pretty defeating in what, what's happening. Jesus says, well, you feed them, you give them something to eat, and they say, it's not going to happen. 
We don't even have enough money. And it almost sounds reasonable if they hadn't just healed a bunch of people from diseases, if they hadn't just cast out a bunch of demons, if they haven't just felt God's power, authority, right? Nothing was supposed to be impossible. And yet now, as they look out in a sea of people, everything is impossible, even for Jesus. But Jesus' response is what I want us to look at and hold on to because Jesus' instruction is meant to bring their helplessness and their human inability to the forefront. Why would he do that? So that they would trust him. When Jesus brings forward a shortcoming in our lives, it's not to leave us in a place of shame, but a place to show that he is sufficient. When Jesus identifies within our lives an area of helplessness, we can't do anything. We are unable to do anything. Jesus does not want us to live in that state of inadequacy but trust him to be our sufficiency. Amen? Jesus wants to prove and show us just how wonderful he is by lifting us out of our helplessness and providing for us so that our trust and faith in him grows. Jesus is sufficient. And even more so, when he's speaking to his disciples, he's not doing that, he's not asking that, that direct of, uh, when he says, you give them something to eat. He's not saying that in a way that's like, you go do it. Oh, no, you can't do it. I can do it, kind of a thing. He's not doing that at all. That'd be kind of mean. He's actually pointing to something that happened in, in Second Kings. Anytime Jesus gives like a correction, we should always think deeply about that and ask, like, has that been said before? And is Jesus trying to, teach a lesson within a lesson, which is what he's doing here. Second Kings, the prophet Elisha had a very similar moment where he wanted to teach his disciple how sufficient God is. Second Kings verse, chapter 4, it says, this man came to the man of God with a sack full of 20 loaves of barley bread from the first bread of the harvest. And Elijah said, Give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant, this is like his disciple, his aide, he said, what? Am I to set this before a hundred men? Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and they will have some left over. So he set it before them. And as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. When Jesus is asking that, or he's giving that direction, he's prodding them to think about the sufficiency of God. He's prodding them to look at their faithlessness, at their helplessness, at their inadequacy, and rely on him. The Christian life, friends, is a continual process of bringing our helplessness our inabilities and our inadequacies before the Lord so he can show 
his power and sufficiency in all of life. One of the missions of our church is to see the difference that Jesus makes in all of life. That means we want to go after all the areas that we in our lives that we live that try to attack that truth, that Jesus does make a difference. And in those moments, when we do feel like that, that we can rest in the promise that God tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Friends, let that be a comfort. Let that comfort you to believe that Jesus can do it instead of insisting that it's all on you. What happens if we if we continue to deflect what Jesus offers and we keep getting into this cycles of repeated struggle of maybe I'm inadequate, maybe I'm, I'm unable to do this thing, or maybe God is, is not, not going to happen. What happens is that in that muddy process, pride begins to slip and get in the way of grace. Pride gets in the way of grace. And the whole topic reminds me of my constant 12-year-now dilemma of trying to prove to Amy and her family that I can properly tie luggage onto the top of our car. It's been a thing. It's been, it's been a continuing thing. Every time we go to Montana, it's the same situation the night before we're about to leave. I'm packing everything up. And Amy, you know, I only had one time where I had loose rope. And that's all, that's all it takes for 12 years now to be a process of uh, this, this thing that goes on. She comes out, she looks at it, she gives me a word of encouragement, and then she go gets her dad for him to come in and double check and make sure that the knots are all tight. And I like can see it and I know it's happening. But this, this, is, this last trip that we had, this is what happened. I didn't want that to happen again. I didn't want to be humble. And instead, I was like, I'm not going to let it happen this time. So I took out my phone while no one was around, and I looked up how to tie trucker knots and, like, secure things. She doesn't know this is happening. She didn't even know this happened. And so I'm out there at night, and I'm tying, like, 12 knots onto the, the top of our car. And I'm like, yeah, no one's going to come in and double-check me, you know, on all this. And it's getting darker and darker outside, and I'm still, like, messing with this, and, like, the, the phone is, like, shining the instructions, you know, as I'm tying all this stuff up. And then I found myself sitting up against the car, like, waiting for her to come out and double-check. And I'm sitting out there, then it got really dark. And then I realized that she's not even home. She, like, went for a walk with her mom. And I had just been standing there, like waiting for her to come back. And all of a sudden, I hear this like still small voice in the back of my head saying, she's not even here. <laughs> like, give up, dude. And so I realized in that moment that from one moment of thinking about maybe I could tie knots better, or maybe I could accept the help, it turned into a pride kind of slipping up and kind of raising and it muddied this whole situation where I could have just asked for her dad for help. 
He does tie really good knots. That's the thing. That's the problem. Is you know he does tie really good knots. But to take it deeper, taking it deeper. Do you believe that Jesus is enough in every challenge, in every burden? Or is he bringing your helplessness and your inability to the surface to show you his sufficiency? We've got to be careful of moments, however small they seem, to to accidentally muddy what God is doing in and through us. Moments of inadequacy and a feeling of the inability to do something can lead to pride if we're not looking to Jesus to be our sufficiency, to provide for us. But Jesus is in the business of displaying his power even when a situation seems impossible. Luke brackets this moment between two questions. They're the same question, which is, who is Jesus? Herod had just asked it in chapter 8, right before, and then it gets asked again. Who is Jesus? And between the questions is the answer. And as we've seen this, we've seen that Jesus is faithful. Who is Jesus? He's sufficient. But following this series of events, we see that Jesus is Lord over all. He's the Lord over nature. In chapter 8, we see Jesus calming the raging sea. Going up to the shore, we see that Jesus is the Lord of the supernatural, over supernature, which is he heals this man and casts out these demons, thousands of demons that are in this man. And then he goes in and we see that Jesus is the Lord of providence, bringing two stories that seem like they would never go together into the story of faith. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and the girl, the 12-year-old girl who had died, fusing these stories together in providential grace. We see that Jesus is the Lord over their lives and faith stories. But in that moment, we also see that Jesus is the Lord over sickness, healing that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, then Jesus being the Lord over death, coming to the girl, resurrecting her. And shortly after that, Jesus enters in and shows a new area of lordship, which is power. Jesus is the Lord over his power, He gives, he takes away, he directs, he uses it to accomplish the Father's will and purpose. All this to show the disciples who had been with him that entire time, who had been with physically with him that entire time, that Jesus is also the Lord of a creation. Jesus tells his disciples in that moment, after they have this whole history. Of all this happening, he tells everybody to sit down and to break up into groups of 50. And this is what he says, verses 16 and 17. Let's read that together. What they, they did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. 
He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Everyone ate and was filled. Displaying that Jesus is the Lord over creation. Colossians 1, it says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Miraculously, Jesus provided all they could eat and then some. What does this show us? It shows us that the supreme sufficiency of Christ is the message that encapsulates this entire series of events. And it shows us that in every situation, as we look at our lives, Jesus is always our provider. His promises to provide for us remain now into eternity. He offers us not only a physical nourishment and provides a physical need that we have, he also provides the spiritual needs that we have by correcting, by sometimes rebuking, by encouraging, by lifting us up and not leaving us to sit in our shame. Not leaving us to sit in our inadequacies, but to move towards his grace and to be looking to him who is sufficient. And to let his grace lead and guide us and increase our faith. John 6, what we read earlier in our worship where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. If you feel wiped out, if you feel fatigued by your circumstance and you've had moments of faith but you're looking at a pessimistic future, wondering where God is going to do it, remember that Jesus is faithful. If you feel defeated, if something has happened in your life where you are, have that sense of defeat and you feel like you're just sitting in problem after problem, feeling inadequate, remember that Jesus is sufficient. And if your situation feels impossible, if you feel like you're looking out on a crowd of thousands and thousands, maybe it's a something else, something that feels overwhelming, remember that Jesus is Lord, and that he's taking care of you in everything. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And he declares to you, to me, and to the church over and over again that he is our provider. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. We thank you for his provision. We thank you for 
the ways that he draws us into his presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to equip us for every good work. Jesus is our provider, and we pray that we would have an increase of faith to believe that in every circumstance and situation in our lives. And I pray, God, that we would come to him in every area of need. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.